Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Thursday, October the 20th, 2022. We've done a number of shows over the years on World War II. We did a show with Richard Overy, the very distinguished World War II historian, asking whether the Second World War had even ended yet. Uh, his book, Blood and Ruins, uh, treats the war as existing between 1931 and 1945. Given the Ukrainian war and the way in which history seems to be repeating itself um, in Eastern Europe, some people might even suggest that World War II hasn't quite ended yet, especially in the way that uh, Putin's people are using Nazis and use of Nazi language to justify the war. Certainly the war brings out all the best and perhaps worst moral qualities and observers and writers. Did a show with the novelist Kristen Beck. She has a new book out called The Winter Orphans, asking uh, why World War II remains so seductive for novelists writing about good and evil. It seems very obvious, of course, the Nazis were bad. We, we meaning the Americans in particular, and, and the British and the French were good. Maybe we're a bit more ambivalent about the Russians. Um, we're certainly very ambivalent on the Germans. Um, we did a show on Hitler's boy soldiers with Helen Munson, who wrote a book about them. One of those boy soldiers was her father. Um, we're ambivalent on Nazi uh, morality. Um, and we're also, I guess, ambivalent on American moral role in that world. Some Americans, Dan Hampton, for example, believes that... Uh, the world still owes America a debt for its bravery and for its brave soldiers in, in the war. Uh, his book, Valor, underlines that. But of course, one of the great mysteries and moral questions about the war is um, America's role in it, given how unjust the society America was, an America of Jim Crow, America of enormous discrimination against uh, black people, black men and women. Uh, and we have a book that addresses this directly today, A Half American, the epic story of African-Americans fighting World War II at home and abroad by my guest today, Matthew uh, Delmont. He's an academic, a distinguished professor uh, uh, in, New, um, in New Hampshire, uh, and he's joining us today. Matthew, welcome. Um, was it hard for you to treat this war in the morally complex way, which one needs to um, in the context of black American soldiers? Thanks for having me. I think that's a great question. Uh, for me, approaching it from the perspective of African-Americans, uh, the moral complexity of the war was really front and center. The great paradox of World War II for black Americans is that more than a million black Americans served in the military during World War II, but they served in segregated forces. Uh, within the army, it was completely segregated and black troops were largely blocked from, blocked from combat roles. They were in supply and logistical roles. Within the Navy, they could only serve as mess attendants uh, where they essentially waited on and served white officers. And at the start of the war, the Marine Corps didn't allow any black Americans to serve. Uh, things were so bad, the Red Cross even segregated blood from blood donors, even though there's no scientific basis from which to segregate white blood from black blood. So really the story for black Americans was 
they were deeply patriotic. They wanted to do everything they could to help defend their country militarily, help defeat the Nazi menace and, and win the war. But they understood that they were going to be coming back to a country that still treated them as second-class citizens, treated them as half American. And so I, I hope that by looking at the war from the Black perspective, it really opens up new questions about what the war was actually about and how, for many Americans, they had really different visions for what post-war America was going to look like. And that led to a lot of African-Americans coming back and fighting for civil rights when they got home um, because they wanted to make sure the kind of freedom and democracy that America and the Allies were trying to bring to Europe also existed in reality back in the United States. Matt, it's a mystery to me as a non-American of how America could have justified its moral engagement in the war, a war against supposedly evil, against the Germans in particular and their mistreatment of the Jews, of course, and of many other minorities, given their own, and I use this language carefully, their own crimes against humanity. Did this ever occur to American policymakers, to FDR and his generals and policy people? The hypocrisy was striking, and it was called out at the time. It was called out by international allies and by foes. Uh, both Germany and Japan used American racial policies uh, to try to shame the United States. They used it as propaganda to encourage Black Americans not to serve. Uh, black Americans obviously were aware of it, and they, they brought it uh, front and center to the White House. Among military policymakers and among politicians in Washington, D.C., they were aware of it, um, but they found themselves in some ways between a rock and a hard place that the uh, racial dynamics within the United States were such that uh, the majority of FDR's uh, party, for example, uh, his political base of power was largely in the American South. And those politicians got in the office because they believed firmly in racial hierarchies. They were explicitly racial segregationists. So while FDR is hearing complaints from black civil rights activists, he's also hearing complaints from white Southerners who don't want to change the racial caste system in the country. What I think is so fascinating about it from a historical perspective is Segregation of the military made no sense for a military that was trying to fight and win a global war. It was logistically complicated. It took a bunch of resources. It was redundant to have these separate training facilities and separate barracks and dining halls and recreation facilities. It didn't serve any strategic purpose. The only reason the American military was segregated was to appease white racial prejudice. And Black Americans were, um, were clear in calling that out. Roy Wilkins from the NAACP uh, had one of my favorite quotes from the book. He said, you know, white folks would rather lose this war than give up the luxury of racial prejudice. And it's hard to find the, um, the lie in that statement. Matt, a couple of obvious questions, which I'm sure you're bored of hearing now, but I have to ask them. It's firstly, why the hell would any black American want to serve a country that so clearly discriminated against them? And second question is, was this true of all Americans? I mean, of course, one would assume that much of the prejudice came from the South, but were there many white Americans, particularly in the military, who themselves were horrified by this discrimination? It, to the first question, it's a good one. Why would black Americans want to serve? And actually the title of my book comes from a letter that a guy named James Thompson wrote to the Pittsburgh Courier. Is this the, the Lieutenant uh, James Thompson? Exactly, yeah. So the, the title James of the book West is, Thompson, who sorry, was involved a, in the, the Normandy landing? Uh, this is a different James Thompson. This is James Gratz Thompson. Okay. Uh, he's a, a black man from Wichita, Kansas. Um, and he wrote a letter to the Pittsburgh Courier in which he asked, should I sacrifice my life to live half American? And those words really stuck with me. That's why I chose half American as the title of the book. And what he's asking is, what does it mean for black Americans like himself to serve a country that's going to treat them as second class citizens? 
the reason more than a million Black Americans served was really twofold. Um, one, Black Americans have been involved militarily in every conflict the United States has ever been a part of. And so Black Americans, just like most other Americans, wanted to serve their country. They recognized the kind of threat that fascism posed and wanted to do something to, to stop it. Once the draft happens, obviously then Black Americans are are forced to serve and they have to serve. But even more than that, they, they recognize that military service is going to be part of what defines what it means to be an American after the war. And they want to be able to lay claim to that uh, full citizenship. And second part of the question of- And sorry to it, jump in, Matt. Yeah. Was it also an opportunity for some young black men, I mean, there were some women, but practically all men, to leave home, to explore the world, to realize themselves one way or the other? Yeah, thank you for asking about that. I think that another piece of why um, black civil rights activists, black leaders, they actually had to fight for the right for black Americans to serve in the military. It might seem paradoxical, but in 1939, 1940, as it becomes clear that the United States is probably going to enter World War II, black civil rights activists actually have to fight for the right to fight in the military. And one of the things they point to is that the military is tax supported and it's providing tangible benefits to people who are in the service. It provides job training, provides these travel opportunities, it expands horizons, and there's tangible economic benefits that come from military service as well. And so black Americans as taxpayers wanted to make sure they had access to that, uh, that institution. In terms of the question you asked about what did white Americans think who were in the military and what kind of racial attitudes they had, um, I wouldn't want to say there's one single white perspective since you had millions and millions of white Americans who served in the military. I think, unfortunately, too many white Americans, both officers and enlisted men, held racially prejudiced views, uh, and black troops had to encounter that on a day-to-day -day basis. They described being called racial epithets. They described racial violence and harassment constantly on these U.S. military bases, particularly in the South. It got so bad that a lot of the black troops said they would feel safer once they deployed to Europe or the Pacific rather than being stationed on these bases in Mississippi, Georgia, and Alabama. At the same time, though, we do have evidence of white troops who had different racial attitudes, who were horrified by the kind of treatment that black troops received, particularly um, white Americans who came from outside of the South. They wrote letters home. They wrote letters to newspapers saying, you know, this is wrong. They recognized the hypocrisy of what was going on. And in a handful of cases, at least, uh, white officers who held more enlightened or progressive racial views, they really earned the trust and respect of their black, uh, their black troops. And black troops understood that and they responded positively to it. They're, some of the most powerful stories in the book are about um, black troops who, who recognize that their, their white officers actually care about them and they actually see them as equals. And they fight all the harder because of that. What about the Americans and all Americans at this point had a very um, practically all American, white Americans at least, had a clear lineage to Europe. What about making sense of the question of racial discrimination in the context of what Hitler was doing in Europe, in France, in Eastern Europe, um, and of course, above all else, with the Jewish question? I assume that uh, we're doing a book next month on Jewish troops in the Civil War, I don't suppose there were that many Jewish troops, but there must have been some. And presumably for them, this hypocrisy was unacceptable. Or for some of them, it must have been unacceptable. Absolutely. I think among the troops in World War II, I think uh, Jewish Americans had the strongest uh, affiliations and affinities for, for black troops, both within the military, but also in the war industries. I think in part because in the 1930s, as Hitler is rising to power in, in Germany, it's Jewish Americans and African Americans who are among the first in the United States to recognize what a dire threat this poses. If you looked at a black newspaper from 1933, 34, 35, you'd see dozens of articles and editorials describing in some detail 
what Hitler's doing in Germany and how Hitler is explicitly drawing on American racial policies to justify his treatment. They make connections between the segregation of Jews on railroad trains in, in Germany, the theft of Jewish property, the attacks against uh, Jewish communities and, and the violence and killing of Jewish people. And for black writers, they, they say this is very similar to what's going on in the Jim Crow South. It's really two sides of the same coin, the kind of um, racial discrimination, white supremacy that's true in the South and um, what's going on in Nazi Germany. And so I think it's important, those those affinities, because for too many Americans, they turned a blind eye to the rise of fascism. But for Jewish Americans and African Americans, they, they couldn't turn a blind eye because they recognized that Hitler wasn't just a problem in Germany or just a problem in Europe. But this was a problem that was going to impact the entire world. Yeah, and of course, Philip Roth and many other American writers, particularly Jewish American writers, have written memorable books about that. Um, I haven't talked about women. We did a show uh, with Damien Lewis, who has a wonderful new book out called um, uh, Agent, uh, Agent, uh, Josephine, uh, Agent Josephine, about Josephine Baker's role, African-American woman, great star, great beauty uh, in the war as a, as a kind of double agent or triple agent working for the British and the French against the Germans. Were there any uh, black females uh, involved uh, formally in the war uh, as nurses or as, um, as um, uh, managers of one kind or another for the war effort? Absolutely. Uh, within the military itself, there were thousands and thousands of black women who were part of the Women's Army Corps um, at the Tuskegee Air Base, where the, the famous Tuskegee Airmen uh, flew and learned to fly. Um, there were a group of black nurses who served on that, that air base and also um, ground personnel who were part of that. And then the largest unit of black women who served in the war was a group called the 688th Central Postal Directory Battalion that was under the leadership of Major Charity Adams. They were sent to, uh, to England in the uh, fall of 1944, uh, and their job was to make sure that troops throughout the European theater received mail from home, which was actually really complicated because these units were moving all the time, and a lot of soldiers had the same common names, like Joe Smith or Tom Jones. But they developed these systems and ended up moving 65,000 pieces of mail per day throughout the European theater. Uh, and troops, both black and white troops, said after the war that receiving mail from home was huge for morale. So this postal battalion did really important work there. On the home front, more than a million black Americans served in war industries and 600,000 of them were black women in these war industries. And they played really important roles in terms of producing uh, the ammunition, the tanks, the trucks that helped to the allies win the war. Uh, and like for white women, the kind of classic Rosie the Riveter model, uh, for these black women who worked in the war industries, it really opened up job possibilities that weren't available prior to the war. And so both at home and abroad, black women uh, were really vital to the war effort. Yeah, it wasn't just the the uh, the Smiths and the Jones, who are ubiquitous, also the Bakers. There was Josephine Baker and also Ella Baker. I know you write about her in the book. Who was Ella Baker? Uh, Ella Baker was one of the most important civil rights organizers and activists uh, really in the 20th century in the United States. Um, she pioneered organizing tactics, grassroots organizing tactics that influenced uh, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, SNCC, in the 1960s and has influenced uh, models up into the um, Black Lives Matter movement of the 2020s. During the war, though, Ella Baker is in charge of trying to recruit uh, more branch members and um, create more branch organizations for the NAACP, the National Association um, uh, for the Advancement of Colored People, which was the largest civil rights organization in the, uh, in the United States at the time. She's dramatically successful. The membership uh, of that organization expands during the war, and she's traveling all across the country uh, recruiting local people 
to start these branches to fight for voting rights, fight for school desegregation, and really fight on behalf of, of veterans in their communities when they come home. And what's interesting about her in the context of this is one of the things the army did to justify their treatment of black troops was to say that black Americans didn't have leadership capacities. They didn't have the intelligence, courage, or bravery to lead men into combat. Ella Baker believes exactly the opposite. She believes that any black American, regardless of their educational background, regardless of their professional status, can help lead people. And she proves it. She teaches, teaches shareholders. She teaches uh, just everyday, ordinary black Americans throughout the country, including in the rural South, how to organize and how to fight for their own rights. And so she has this catalyzing effect, both during the war, but then after the war as well, the kind of um, organizations she helps create and the models of leadership she helps helps produce influence the civil rights movement that uh, comes into fruition in the 1950s and 60s. That whole generation, of course, of World War II soldiers uh, shaped or reshaped American civil rights. One of the most Distinguished figures was Thurgood Marshall, who was also involved in, in World War II. Do you think of all the African-Americans involved, Marshall's experience was the most consequential in political terms? I think almost certainly. Uh, Thurgood Marshall is, is best known in the U.S. context as the first black U.S. Supreme Court justice. But during the war, he's the head of the legal division for the NAACP. And he's crisscrossing the country, traveling hundreds and hundreds of miles each year, investigating claims of discrimination and violence against black troops uh, across the country. Particularly in the U.S. South, black troops were just catching hell. Uh, there was frequent um, instances of violence, including a number of murders uh, on and near these U.S. Army bases. Without Thurgood Marshall and the kind of investigations he does, it was all too easy for the military to just sweep those under the rug. Uh, but with Marshall at the helm, he's going into these small towns and communities, going to military bases, investigating violence against black troops, and then really doing everything he can to hold military leaders and politicians in Washington, D.C. to account. And so the kind of... Um, the kind of impact he has nationally after the war, he really cuts his teeth and, and lays the foundation for that during the war. And he's just a, a ter tremendous figure. He's a, a giant of a man with a big booming voice. Uh, and when he came to these small towns, people knew that they would actually have a chance at justice because Thurgood Marshall was there. Yeah, it's funny. Um, we've had a number of conversations with, on this show with African-American scholars of one kind or another, writers, about what it means to be an American. Uh, Carol Anderson, one of America's leading African-American historians, has suggested that being American is perhaps more meaningful even for African-Americans because they have something to live up to and it conforms in theory to their ideals. There were two Americas, of course, um, Matt. The America of discrimination, which you described, but also the America of the law and of the Constitution which was, of course, the America that, that Marshall understood and argued for. Um, it's a very surreal notion that the America described constitutionally or legally was a very fair America, and the actual America was a very unfair one. Did this impact on the behavior and activity of African-American troops in the war? I mean, did they carry maybe not their Bibles around, but their constitutions? Yeah, I think that's a nice way of framing it. Um, I think one of the through lines in African-American history is that gap you're describing, the gap between the values America professes to hold and then the everyday reality of what Black Americans have actually experienced. I think that's what makes Black service during World War II and, and beyond so profound. Uh, the fact that Black Americans were fighting and dying to save a country that did not yet treat them fully as equal. 
when Black Americans, Black veterans come back to the United States, they're disrespected, uh, openly so, and at least a dozen of them are murdered, some also wearing their military uniforms. But they fight. They fight for civil rights. They fight to make America a better place. What I think is powerful about the vision that Black Americans had for the country and continue to have for the country is that they believe America can be something greater than it is presently. I think that was true for the Black veterans that came back in 1945. They believed that there was a better America that was possible. Uh, not enough white Americans uh, were willing to hear what they had to say, but the fact that those Black veterans believed it, the fact that they fought for it militarily, and the fact that they came back and fought even harder in terms of civil rights, it's an inspiring story. It is an inspiring story, but we don't want to idealize, we don't want to fall into the other trap of assuming that all black people are good and all white people are bad. I assume that for every, for every Thurgood Marshall and for Ella Baker and all these heroic African-Americans, there were soldiers who misbehaved, who were cowardly. Um, are there stories in your book of, of that side of the African-American experience in the war? I don't spend a great deal of time on, on those stories. I would certainly agree that um, from any racial ethnic group, you have people who perform across the spectrum uh, in terms of behaviors and attitudes. And so you can certainly find evidence of soldiers who did, black soldiers who did uh, horrific things during the war, in including uh, sexual assault, like you could for, for white soldiers as well. And the reason I don't dwell on those stories in this book is because, unfortunately, those are a lot of the stories that got foregrounded at the time. Um, mm. There's a quote I have during the book in the, the closing of a senator named James O. Eastland, uh, who is a Southern segregationist from Mississippi, who on the floor of the Senate openly disparages the service of black troops. And he points to these kind of things. He says he's had conversations with army generals and says that black troops committed the majority of crimes in the, in the region, including the majority of, of sexual assaults in, in Europe. Those are patently not true. Um, those were uh, lies that he was saying on the floor of the Senate in order to disparage the service of, of black soldiers. And so I think the reason I don't spend as much time on the um, the bad conduct is because unfortunately, given the racial dynamics of the time, those were the things that got more more media attention, as opposed to the vast, vast majority of the more than a million of Black Americans who served, who served their country extremely proudly, even when their country didn't repay that service. Matt, a lot of the Hollywood movies about American discovery of Nazi evil when the troops and their tanks rolled into co the concentration camps. There's always a black soldier. You know, Hollywood's very good at doing its minority representation. Uh, do you have stories in the book of a, a particular African-American response to Nazi evil, to seeing how inhumanely humans could treat one another? I mean, I'm not in any way vindicating or justifying uh, American uh, racism, but it doesn't compare to the Nazi industrial attempt to wipe out an entire people. Absolutely. Um, there are stories in the book of some of the black troops who uh, reached the concentration camps just days after they had been liberated. And like all other Americans and like all other observers, they were horrified by what they saw. Um, the Holocaust is a singular event in world history. And the way that got covered in the black press treated it like that. Um, they understood that the Nazis had perpetrated something uh, horrendously evil against Jewish people in Europe. And it was even more powerful because this wasn't necessarily shocking 
to Black Americans who read it. Um, they, like I said, had been following news from Europe for more than a decade. And so even if some of the, the particular horrors of the concentration camps uh, were exposed at the end of the war, the kind of treatment that Jewish people received uh, by the Nazis, the, the kind of horrors that were perpetrated against Jewish communities in Europe um, were all too familiar to, to Black Americans and, and they, were, they were horrified by it. Yeah, I'm guessing given the history of slavery and discrimination and evil, in America, perhaps the behavior of the Nazis was slightly less foreign to black troops than white troops. Um, what about the creative side? Um, Langston Hughes was involved in the war, one of America's greatest poets. Uh, did that later generation of writers, of musicians, of poets, and ultimately even of filmmakers, the remarkable renaissance of African-American creative achievement after the war over the last hundred years, really, um, how, how many uh, of, of, of those members of the African-American community, in addition to Langston Hughes, were involved in the war? When you start digging a little bit, you find out that all sorts of, of artists, musicians, and, and other creative types were involved in the war in one way or another. Um, so Langston Hughes uh, traveled to Spain, actually, in 1937 to cover the Spanish Civil War. He went there to follow more than 80 Black Americans who volunteered as part of the Abraham Lincoln Brigade uh, to fight in the Spanish Civil War uh, on the same side as the Republican forces who were fighting back against General Franco's fascist forces. And what Hughes wants to report on is what did, what did it mean for these Black Americans to travel to another country to risk their lives to fight against fascism? What he, what he shows when he uh, tells back to Black readers at home uh, is that Black Americans were among the first to take up arms to, to defeat fascism. And they took up combat roles that they were denied at the time in the U.S. military, and they fought in integrated units that just didn't exist in the U.S. military because they were segregated. Some of the other artists who participated in the war in one way or another, uh, James Baldwin uh, was just 19 or 20 when he worked um, at a construction unit, um, a uh, army depot in New Jersey. Um, famed artist Jacob Lawrence and Romare Bearden uh, were both part of the military effort in, in different branches, the army and, and the Coast Guard. And so, and in part because World War II was a total war, uh, when you start tracing the lineage of almost anyone who was of fighting age in World War II, almost everyone has some sort of touch point with, with the war. Either they were drafted, they volunteered, or they worked in, in um, defense industries at home. And all the great battles, of course, every battle, there were African-Americans, because as you said, a million were involved in the war, the Battle of the Bulge, you write about in the book, even at uh, Iwo Jima, the famous photo, I don't remember there being a black man in the photo, but uh, certainly there must have been black men there. What about the issue, uh, Matthew, of discrimination against Japanese people, on, on, particularly on the Asian front, the different kind of race, racism and, and, and racial, horrible racial assumptions there. How did that play out for African-American soldiers? Was the experience um, in Asia different from the experience in Europe? Uh, can I ask, do you mean the, how black troops interacted with uh, people in Japan or, or the treatment of Japanese-Americans in the well, United States? Well, both, in, in, in every sense, given how uh, Japanese-Americans... I, I was just um, at the... Uh, World War II Museum in, in New Orleans, I'm sure you've been there, and there's a whole section dedicated uh, to how uh, Japanese Americans were treated during the war. So starting on the domestic side, uh, the internment of Japanese Americans is one of the, the most horrible stains uh, on the U.S. during during the war. Um, the treatment was entirely unjustified, and I think the fact that the United States finally apologized decades later um, 
was right and made some small attempt to um, provide reparations for that for that injustice. For Black Americans, when they observed that, um, they were extremely critical of it. Um, they saw Japanese Americans as other communities of color who uh, were being treated unfairly by the United States. But there are also wrinkles to the story that um, the internment of Japanese Americans in some places like Los Angeles actually opened up housing stock that then African Americans moved into. And so when you dig down more deeply, um, there are more kind of complex and nuanced aspects of it. In terms of internationally, um, Japanese or um, African American troops, when they interacted with um, Japanese uh, communities, Japanese soldiers, Japanese army, um, they largely viewed them through the same kind of stereotyped uh, lens that, that white soldiers would have. Uh, there was a lot of racist caricatures in terms of uh, stereotyping uh, the Japanese military and a lot of um, derogatory terms used by Black Americans towards Japanese soldiers, which is part of think, the, the reality of what it means to go to war, um, that throughout wars, uh, armies have created visions of another to make it easier to uh, to kill the people they're, they're fighting against. And that was that was no less true for, for Black troops when they're fighting against the Japanese military. Matt, I'm not sure about your background, but did this project make you embarrassed to be an American? It it didn't. Um, I'm, I'm black, um, and so my I come into this as a historian and as a, a black American, I think with eyes wide open about uh, both the good and the uh, bad parts about our nation's history. Um, I think for me, if anything, what I what I value about American history is that there are tremendous stories of of patriotism, of bravery, and of trying to to fight for the good, both in the country and in the world. And doing the research for this book, I found dozens and dozens of those. They're just inspiring, inspiring stories of people like Medgar Evers, for example, um, who's part of the Red Ball Express, who helped move supplies across um, across France after D-Day. These black truck drivers who were really crucial to winning winning the war in Europe. He comes home and fights for civil rights immediately once he gets home. He leads a group of black veterans to register to vote on his 21st birthday in Decatur, Mississippi, 1946, only to be turned away by a white mob with guns. I think if, if one can't be inspired by the story of someone at Meg Revers, it's, it's impossible to know what, what would inspire you. On the other hand, um, it's hard, it is hard to look at this history as, as an American um, because one wants to think that rational, smart, freedom-loving people would, would make better choices uh, with regards to how they treat their fellow citizens. But the reality of our nation's history is that it's been deeply, deeply structured by racial prejudice and by racism, and World War II is no different. And so one of my hopes from the book, Inc., is two things, that we can finally honor the service of Black veterans, uh, but also that Americans today can look back and really talk honestly about what actually happened in World War II. Uh, for a lot of Americans, they like to think about World War II as, as a good war or somehow a simpler, more unified era, but it was anything but. Um, and I think if we look honestly at the kind of racial uh, animosity and racism that existed during the war, we'll be better positioned to understand where our country is positioned today. Yeah, Matt, let, let's end uh, looking forward a little bit. Correct me if I'm wrong, I just saw Apocalypse Now again. There were two central characters in, in, in that representation of the Vietnam War who were African-American. Would it be fair to say that after the Second World War, slowly but surely the, the American military became a vehicle for integration and that much of the most profound injustice ended after the Second World War? Is that simplistic and too generous to the American military? 
I don't think it's it's too simplistic. I think the first part is certainly true. Uh, the military desegregates in 1948 uh, after more than a decade of organized protests by civil rights activists. They're finally able to persuade President Truman to sign an executive order to desegregate the military. By the Korean War, a few years later, um, the majority of the military is integrated, and certainly by the Vietnam War, the entirety of the military is integrated, and you have uh, more opportunities open to Black Americans in all aspects of, of service. And what Black servicemen and veterans from that time report is that the treatment was better than what their fathers had experienced in World War II. Uh, there was still rampant racism, particularly in Vietnam, um, white troops flying the Confederate flag, wearing KKK uniforms, uh, particularly or costumes even after, um, especially after Martin Luther King was killed. And so racism was still paramount during the Vietnam War. But as an institution, uh, the military took important steps after desegregation in 1948 to uh, try to treat all Americans more equitably. Um, what I think is important about that is it did influence other aspects of American society. The desegregation of the military helped influence the Brown versus Board decision in 1954. Uh, it helped influence corporate America, it influenced higher education, and it put the military on the, the leading edge of um, racial equality in the United States, which is not to say racism does not still exist in the military, but what the military discovered after World War II was, like I said earlier, segregation didn't make any sense for fighting a war. The military was a more effective fighting force if they could actually take advantage of the manpower or, or person power of everyone in the United States. And so from a, a practical standpoint, the military was stronger if they could get rid of racism. And then more recently, if they could address uh, discrimination in terms of gender and sexuality. And I think for all of its uh, troubles and all the things that might be um, difficult about it, the military has done uh, more than many other institutions in the United States to try to advance uh, the issue of racial equality. And don't we have the ironic situation now, Matt, where in the, the last tragic wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, minorities and perhaps African-Americans in particular are overrepresented because there's no national service. Do you think ultimately it would be for the benefit not just of the military, but of American society broadly for there to be na national service so that all races, all classes, all genders, all sexualities have the same responsibility in, in the event of a national war? I do think mandatory national service is a good idea. It doesn't necessarily have to only be armed military service, but something that tries to uh, force Americans to recognize that we all have an obligation to, um, to the service of, of this country in one way or another to try to, to make it um, the country we, we want, to see, uh, want to see it be. The military has also had the impact of, of bringing people together, <clears throat> excuse me, across um, across demographic lines that you just don't see in other parts of our country. We're, we remain a deeply, deeply segregated country and also a very politically fractured country right now. And the military is one of the few institutions that actually brings people together across those lines. As you say, once the military became an all-volunteer force after the Vietnam War, uh, Black Americans and other people of color have been overrepresented, uh, in part because the military provides economic and employment opportunities that are better than what they can find uh, in corporate America or in the private sector. And so I do think, looking forward, it would be better uh, for more Americans to be actively involved uh, in service in some capacity. Well, good stuff. You've done a, a public service in your own way here. Matthew F. Delmont's uh, Half American, the epic story of African-American fighting World War II at home and abroad, not just an epic story, but a, a morally complex epic story, which I think is a, an appropriate mirror on the moral complexity of America itself. Congratulations, uh, Matthew. It's an important book and an all-important subject. Um, other books on your reading list? What would you suggest people read about this stuff, race, history, anything you want? Novels, fun books, kids' books? What are you reading these days? 
Um, I think most of my reading is on African-American history and history of civil rights. So I would recommend a book by Jean Theo Harris that came out a number of years ago on Rosa Parks uh, called The Rebellious Life of uh, Ms. Rosa Parks. It really will open people's eyes about the, the true story of Rosa Parks. Um, there's also a good uh, book by um, a story named Keisha N. Blaine on the civil rights activist Fannie Lou Hamer um, that I would recommend. The biography came out last year. So if I had to pick two, those would be the ones I'd recommend.